Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about the pointing gesture in humans, maybe in animals, mostly in humans. Robert, I have a question. Yes. Since we recorded part one, have you noticed yourself noticing the way you point at things and the way your family points at things? Well... You know, maybe a little bit. Uh, actually, it, you know, we for one thing, I guess around the house, there's not a lot. I mean, what am I going to point at, right? I mean, it's it's all a very <laughs> established environment. Uh, we've gone on uh-huh. a few walks here and there and done, you know, some stuff outside. But I don't know. I haven't done much specific pointing. Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit at like birds and squirrels and all. But um, yeah, I, I, I found that I, I want to say that this, that these episodes really changed the way I engage in pointing, but it, I don't think it has. <laughs> it's really made me, the, the area where it has influenced me more is mod- noticing how much we depend on the idea of pointing in our language and in just our, our understanding of the world and in our technology, which I'll get to at the end of this episode. But you wanted to talk some more about animals, right? You didn't get enough animal pointing in the last episode. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we closed out the last episode. And if you did not listen to the last episode, do go back and listen to it because this is definitely Definitely a a part one and part two situation here and not just, you know, two treatments on a similar topic. So, uh, yeah, at the end, we were talking a little bit about dogs and about um, elephants and dolphins. Uh, I wanted to point out that cats and horses have also been attributed some degree of understanding of human pointing, at least in Hmm. some studies. Um, uh, With horses, I can I guess I can understand that one a a bit with cats. I'm, I'm very much. Uh, on the fence with that. I'm, I'm a little doubtful. <laughs> but allegedly, at least some cats are, are able to pick up on that. Um, now, on the divide between a domestic dog's ability to understand pointing versus a wild wolf's inability to understand pointing, I, I ran across uh, uh, some uh, some writings about this from primatologist uh, Franz Duvall, uh, who has uh, been a, a past guest on the show. Yeah, we we interviewed him one time a long time ago. I think actually Christian and I interviewed him about his book called Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? In this very book, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Um, uh, Friends of All says the following about this uh, domestic dog and wolf divide. Quote, wolves may be poor at following human pointing, but when it comes to picking up hints from their own kind, they beat dogs. The investigators ascribe this contrast to attention rather than cognition. They point out that wolves watch one another more closely as they rely on the pack for survival, whereas dogs rely on us. That, I think, is an excellent point. I mean, so some people, I think, have tried to say, like, oh, if an animal doesn't understand human pointing gestures, that's like a cognitive limitation of the animals because the animal's not smart enough to get what's going on, which I think is ridiculous. Like, it doesn't take the ethological point of view into consideration that animals are adapted to certain kinds of social interactions. It's not like that that an animal is not smart if it's not particularly adapted to human gestures. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, his main point here is that 
you know, we have to be very careful about human-centric criteria in our understanding and evaluation of animal intelligence. The dog only seems brighter uh, to some because it is so closely aligned with our own cognition, again, via, you know, these thousands of years of uh, cohabitation and domestication. Uh, yeah, and I think even th- this came up in the last episode. There might even be some evidence to indicate that it's not even all there just in like the dog's inbred instinct. A lot of it might be literally just exposure to humans within the dog's own lifetime. And and it's interesting, too, if if we think again to what pointing essentially is for the human animal, like really boil it down, a means of directing the attention of others to something, then it's not its not like there are not other examples in the wild. Gaze, body language, and vocalization instantly come to mind. Multiple species on, say, the African savanna or within a rainforest community, uh, they communicate and or pick up on cues that direct attention towards, say, a common adversary, some sort of a, a predator creeping into the area. An animal alarm signal is simply an anti-predator adaptation. And likewise, especially with some birds, there are also deceptive alarm calls that manipulate these systems. So, uh, you know, we have to consider that. We also have to consider alarm pheromones, chemical signals that achieve the same ends. And that's something we, we don't only see that in animals. We see examples of this in plants. Hmm. Now, that's very interesting. And I wonder... I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. I wonder if you do. If there's any evidence of pheromonal signaling, signaling having directionality to it. So not just saying like, hey, there is something to be concerned about, but hey, there's something right here to be concerned about. Here's where it is. Mm, this would be this would be a fun one to get into. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about doing a. Uh, plant communication in even plant intelligence episode for a while. Uh, I, I think that's something we should get to this year for sure. Totally. Now, uh, other other examples from the animal world reveal just how unnecessary the question is with certain species. Uh, consider ants, for example, which uh, as eusocial insects, they're capable of working together to perform complex tasks and, and solve rather interesting problems. We've, we've talked about this on the show before, but despite the trappings of our language when we consider a queen uh, in, a, in an ant colony, there is no single ant commanding the others. There's no ant pointing, and yet there is this communication based on pheromones, sounds, and touch. That's a very good point. I think uh, I think we can naively fall into the assumption, yeah, that the queen is in charge of the ant colony. But in fact, it, there is something in charge of the ant colony, but it's not a single individual animal. It's a distributed kind of intelligence and directionality. It's almost like the way that a government might be directed by a constitution, but the constitution is in the ant's genes. Yeah, so like when we compare the human condition to the ant condition, yeah, there's just a lot of stuff that is there's not going to be a really a, a good one to one comparison. Though of course we we end up falling back on that, right? Because a lot of that is how we innately understand the world uh, without the insight of science. Like how do we understand the ant? We try and put ourselves in the mind of the ant within the culture of the ant, and right. uh, we're going to use our own model to judge that by. Our kind of hierarchies, like who's your boss? But the queen is not the ant's boss, really. The queen is more like the ant's uh, sex organs. Yeah, it's like uh, you know considering the the sex organs to be the leader of the the human organism. <laughs> So anyway, those are just some additional thoughts on the the animal realm of pointing and not pointing. Uh, But most of what we're going to be talking about in this part two is going to relate 
back to the the human condition of pointing at things and, and what does it mean and how it factors into our larger cognitive picture. Right. Now, one of the things we talked about in the last episode is the idea of pointing as a, a as a pretty much universal human communication property is found in all cultures. It arises very naturally, very young in children all over the place, basically with the only major known variations being like certain neurological conditions. Uh, but so here's an interesting question is so if pointing seems to arise naturally in children, uh, the, you know, there are obviously cultural variations around conventions for pointing in adults. It looks like children pretty much everywhere start pointing roughly around the same stage in development. Yeah, I think uh, some people say what around by by age one. And I think uh, it's also been said, what, nine to 14 months. So basically that window. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So it, it seems like this absolutely crucial piece of early communication. And some theorists have argued that pointing is the first exclusively informative gesture that most children display. It's like the, the child's first type of pure information communication. But the interesting question is, how does that happen? How does pointing begin in the child? Where does it come from and how do we learn to do it? So I want to refer to a study that I was reading by uh, Cathal O'Madigan, Gregor Kochel, and Brent Strickland, published in the journal Science Advances in 2019, called The Origin of Pointing Evidence for the Touch Hypothesis. Uh, so, so it's asking this question, where does pointing come from in development? What developmental process leads to the pointing gesture? So the authors here claim that because pointing is so foundational in social communication, quote, determining the origin of pointing is therefore essential to our understanding of human language and uniqueness. And yet, up to now, we have known next to nothing about where it comes from. Now, this doesn't mean nobody's ever thought about the issue. Uh, before this study, there have been a number of hypotheses that uh, researchers have put out there uh, about, you know, good guesses about where pointing might come from and, and what kinds of processes in infancy lead to it. And one of the main ones has been the idea of the reaching hypothesis. So this hypothesis goes like this. Um, what if pointing grows naturally out of a child's reaching for objects they want? So imagine a child reaching out for something. You know, uh, the child wants a cookie. She wants to reach her hand out and grasp it. But it is beyond an arm's length. And then so she's reaching out for it. She can't reach it. But then, of course, the gods interfere. Uh, a parent steps in and gives her the thing she wants, hands the cookie to her. Now, children, it's hypothesis that over time, you know, kind of like a rat in a Skinner box, a child will ritualize themselves to reach a handout toward a desired object through operant conditioning. So, you know, the way operant conditioning would work in a Skinner box or any kind of lab experiment is that uh, like a mouse doesn't need to know why pressing a button gets it a food pellet. It just does. And mm -hmm. likewise, a child doesn't need to understand at first why reaching toward an object far away often ends up with that object in their hands. It just works through operant conditioning and uh, the conditioning takes hold and encourages the behavior. 
But the authors here note that there, there are several reasons this hypothesis is probably not correct for pointing, uh, or at least this version of the hypothesis. Uh, it at least fails to account for the major type of pointing in question. So uh, remember the difference we talked about in the last episode? I think parents will probably be familiar with this, the difference between imperative pointing and declarative pointing. Remember, imperative is the kind of pointing of, I want that. It's usually done with an open hand and it's to get an object. That would be kind of like what we're just talking about with reaching for something you want versus a very different kind of thing, declarative pointing, also known as informative pointing, which is look at that. It's the, the explicit attempt to direct someone's attention to an object rather than, you know, a, a request to get the object into your hand. And there's plenty of evidence that these two types of pointing are acquired at different stages of development. Uh, not surprisingly, imperative pointing comes first. And the authors here say that uh, the reaching hypothesis might account for imperative pointing, but not for what they call uh, declarative or what they call informative pointing. Quote, since children use imperative points to have things handed to them rather than simply to direct attention, imperative points are produced with an open hand rather than a single index finger, and they feature significantly less vocalizations and joint attention than prototypical pointing gestures. Uh, and I thought that was interesting, too, like that uh, that apparently having like the look at that type pointing, the informative pointing is tends to be accompanied more by vocalizations about what you're pointing at, which I would have expected kind of the opposite. I would have expected more noises to be made during the like, give me that reaching. <laughs> Uh, I guess I guess the the give me that reaching is I mean it's just more direct right it's like that me want you know <laughs> like mm -hmm. bring that to me that to me um uh put that in my mouth kind of a thing whereas if you're gesturing to a bird it's like what about that bird what am i looking for what is my uh you know how are we relating to this are you saying we should try and catch it we should just stare at it is it is it something good about it something bad about it something it's doing something you know intrinsic to just what it is uh, you know there are a lot of additional questions that arise yeah, that's right. The the pointing gesture is is far more ambiguous and and could go in a lot more directions. The the imperative uh, pointing is is uh, much simpler. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Imperative um, gesture towards say a cupcake. There, it is. Right. There's no question what is desired there. No, no, no. I want to talk about the color of the frosting. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How often does that happen? Uh, so, yeah, in, in the case of this study, we're more curious about where the later kind of pointing comes from, the informative or declarative look at that pointing, usually with the index finger instead of the whole hand outstretched. Um, so the, the next hypothesis that they talk about is the imitation hypothesis. This one is pretty commonsensical. The idea is that pointing originates in children imitating the pointing that their parents do. So you see parents pointing and then children start doing the same thing. That makes sense. I mean, we assume that children learn language by listening to parents and other adults talk and they, they pick it up that way. So why not learn this type of communication by imitating their parents? It's very commonsensical, but the evidence we have indicates that this is pretty much totally wrong for declarative pointing. Um, so if children pointed by imitation of their parents – 
For one thing, you would expect to see more cross-cultural variation in how children pick up pointing. Uh, and anthropologists do not see this cross-cultural variation in how, ch- how children pick up pointing. There are like sort of pointing cultures and different conventions of pointing among adults in different cultures. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of variation about how pointing starts to happen in young children. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess part of it comes, it's one of these things with childhood development, like isn't you, you'd have to carry out like a pointing-free uh, child-rearing process as an experiment, and like, how would you even begin to do that? Uh, how would you have the commitment to do that? Yeah, totally. Now, you can look at it the other way, and actually I will look at a study like this in a second, not, so, not someone trying to create a pointing-free environment for a child, but trying to train a child with lots of exposure to pointing to see what that does. We'll, we'll look mm-hmm. at that in just a second. But uh, first, just to, to quote the authors of the study we're talking about, uh, you know, first of all, they say the morphology of early childhood pointing seems pretty much universal. It's like the extended index finger point. Uh, with They say with infants in all cultures pointing pretty much the same way and around the same time in development. So this really makes it seem like it's not based on uh, imitating little variations in how adults in your culture point. But beyond that, they say, you know, if kids pick up informative pointing by mimicking their parents in naturalistic contexts, you might expect that deliberate attempts to expose young children to lots of pointing gestures would accelerate their adoption of pointing, right? That like that they would start to point more and earlier if the adults around them do a whole lot of pointing to train them. And does this happen? Well, th- this is what I was just talking about. A study from 2012 actually looked into this. It was by Daniel Matthews, Tanya uh, Bain, Elena Levin, and Michael Tomasello in Developmental Science – uh, from 2012. And the study had mothers perform daily training with pointing uh, for their infants. And these would be infants of 9, 10, or 11 months of age. And then this was compared with a control group of infants of the same ages who got daily musical training for the same amount of time. And the researchers here found that, uh, quote, infants' ability to point with the index finger at the end of the study was not affected by the training, but was instead predicted by infants' prior ability to follow the gaze direction of an adult. And they say that, quote, uh, this suggests that prior social cognitive advances rather than adult socialization of pointing per se determine the developmental onset of indexical pointing. So there are some variations in in the adoption of pointing, but it seems like one of the the main factors informing that is is something about like how well a child follows where an adult is looking naturally and things like that. That not how much pointing they see happening around them. Hmm. Okay. So anyway, that makes it look like the imitation of adult pointing is probably not the best or main explanation for what's going on with the uh, with, with children picking up pointing gestures on their own. So what else could explain it? Well, the authors here, they present an alternative hypothesis. They say that declarative or informative pointing originates in the desire to touch things. Well, it is true that children do love to touch things. A lot of energy has to go into uh, reminding them not to touch things. You take them to an art museum. You take them, uh, uh, or even to you know, t- today with a lot of, uh, I'm sure a number of parents are encountering this, is we're having to do more and more uh, teleschooling, uh, more and more screen time to help them uh, you know, hang out with friends and uh, and actually get their education. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're using their uh, their parents' computers, and we have to remind them, oh, you don't actually have to touch 
touch the screen. It's not a touch screen, and also, <laughs> and, and you could actually hurt the screen by tapping on it like this. Uh, so yeah, ki- kids are very tactile for sure. Yeah, totally. I mean, and the authors here talk about this. They talk about the it's a, it's especially common in young children to want to not just sample something by one sense at a time, but to have multiple coordinated sensory experiences of an object. So uh, one of the main ones is to coordinate visual and haptic information gathering. You want to look at and touch something. And so like the idea of an art museum where you can't touch the paintings is naturally counterintuitive to young children. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, uh, you know, they're they're in kind of a different sense realm. You know, they're you have to think of them as kind of like little alien probes that have landed on another world and they need to collect all of this data. So while you know, you and I, we can go to uh, uh, you know an art museum or a, a museum full of like ancient artifacts, and we're totally fine not touching everything. We we have a general idea of what it would feel like if we did, uh, mm-hmm. but it is not necessarily the case with the child. And uh, and it, it is wonderful to see so many museums these days uh, incorporating some sort of touch exhibit for the younger children. So as to, you know, understanding that they must touch something. So here, here is something you can touch to get a, a literally get a feel for it. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm about to reveal something about my own infantile mentality, but I, uh, I actively have to resist the desire to touch when I go into museums and I'm looking at sculptures and stuff. I don't know if other adults are like this and they just don't talk about it. Uh, Maybe this reveals something about me, but like when I, you know, I was recently, last year I was at the Louvre and I wanted to touch the sculptures. (laughs) I had to like keep reminding myself like you can't touch that. Huh. Now I wonder, I wonder where it comes from though and you specifically because on one hand there is this, what we were talking about here, the childlike desire to touch, uh, just a, the human need for sensory information about something. But uh, on the other hand, I wonder if it is tied at all to uh, something that Christian and I did an episode about uh, years ago, the, the call of the void, you know, the, the <laughs> desire to do the thing that is prohibited, such uh-huh. as touch the Mona Lisa or, or what have you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I also do experience that sometimes, like just like uh, a taboo is presented and you have that instinct to violate it automatically, which you have to resist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe a little bit of both. Who knows? I will say that I feel like my intuitive desire to touch things tends to be correlated to um, to how ancient and mysterious they are. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, could def- I can definitely get that. When you see like a you know, a piece of art that is thousands of years old, there is a, there is this, this feeling that, you know, you do want to touch it. There is a desire mm-hmm. to engage with it physically. By confessing all this, I'm not trying to give you other adults out there license to go in museums and touch things. Don't touch the sculptures, folks. Uh, human remains are another one, I think, when, when there are, oh, are yeah. actual human remains in a, in some sort of an exhibit, there is this sort of, you know, maybe slightly ghoulish, you know, feeling like you want to touch this thing that was once a part of a living being, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I want to touch the mummy. It's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, though, I think that kind of thing makes a lot more sense for children because when you're, when you're a young child, you're not just, 
I mean, when, when you're a young child, coordinating visual and haptic feedback is actually informative. You are learning things from that that I think an adult touching a mummy is probably not really learning. When you're a child, you're still trying to coordinate your uh, your relationships of what things look like versus what they feel like. And as an adult, mm-hmm. you don't need to do that as much anymore. So I don't know. There's probably less excuse for me. <laughs> Uh, so before – anyway, back to the study. Uh, before the experiment, the authors think that there was already a, a bit of good reason for thinking that pointing begins with the touch instinct. And they give some examples based on previous research. Uh, for example, I, I thought this was pretty interesting. They say, quote, children use a prototypical pointing handshape to explore objects tactually from as early as six months. And as the frequency of pointing gestures increases from around nine months of age, the frequency of this kind of exploratory touch decreases, suggesting that pointing is somehow taking over from touch. Uh, oh, you know, I have to return to the museum for a second here, Joe, because uh, have you ever had this situation? Hopefully, uh, you and, and listeners out there, hopefully none of you have had this direct experience yourself, but I've seen this happen to other people where you'll have a, a section of the museum, you have a lot of security there, and someone is pointing at the artwork and uh, they're oh. reprimanded for it. Uh-huh. Yes, like they and, point too close. Yeah, and I wonder if part of that is like, it, it, again, comes down to the idea that, you know, what, a, what is the line between pointing at something and touching it or touching it accidentally, but then also perhaps it gets down to a deeper connection between pointing and touching. I, I think that could be exactly right. I mean, so like it, it appears there's this correlation as the as the exploratory touching of objects decreases, the pointing instinct increases almost as if you're trading one for the other. That mm. that's very interesting to me. There there could be a lot of uh, a lot of information in that little nugget. I, I think we should keep that in mind as we go forward. Um, sh- should we take a break before we get into uh, the experiments that the the researchers did here to test this hypothesis? Yeah, we'll take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Let's get into some experiments. All right, so we've been talking about the study from 2019 by Omadigan et al., and they're trying to investigate the origins of pointing in young children, uh, and, and they're advocating a particular hypothesis known as the touch hypothesis, that pointing instincts emerge from uh, a child's instinct to reach out and touch things. Uh, so they came up with a, a very interesting group of experiments to test this. So this is one of those where if you'd asked me, you know, how would you test for the touch hypothesis, I would think, I don't know, how on earth would you study that? But the designs I thought were really cool. So the first one is what they called the reference fixing test. Uh, so the setup goes like this. You have test subjects, and this included both children and adults. They had children at 18 months, at three years, at six years, and adults. And they had these different groups point at things. Uh, For the older subjects, there was a game involving marbles hidden under cups, and then the cups were on these shelves, and the player had to point to cups displayed on a shelf. Uh, for the 18-month-olds, they, they played a fun a little uh, puppet game. So there was a, a, a screen and an experimenter uh, sitting in front of the screen, and a puppet would appear from behind a screen and get introduced to the child. They'd be like, oh, hey, this is, you know, Pete the puppet. And then the puppet would disappear and reappear from behind a different part of the screen and say hello. And then the experimenter would pretend not to see the puppet and ask the child to help point out where the puppet went and then thank the child for helping once they did point it out. 
And then, so they video recorded all these tests, and the experimenters used the video analysis to study the angles of the children's fingers when they engaged in this kind of pointing. Now, it's commonly assumed, we talked about this assumption in the last episode, that when you point to something with an outstretched index finger, uh, I think a lot of people are kind of, you kind of imagine an arrow or vector extending out from your finger in the direction of the target, and the angle of that arrow or vector is established by the angle of the length of your finger. It's as if your finger just kept extending straight out wherever it ended up pointing would hit the target, right? Yeah. Uh, that's the the thing longer that we were talking about. <laughs> Uh, but if pointing comes out of an instinct to touch, there might actually be a different model that makes more sense. Uh, to quote the authors here, quote, when someone reaches out to touch something, the angle of her finger is largely irrelevant. It could be horizontal or even vertical. What matters is that the fingertip can make contact with the object she wishes to touch. If pointing originates in touch, then a better predictor of reference ought to be what we call the touch line, the vector that runs between a person's eye and fingertip while pointing. And it turns out this is exactly what the researchers found. They found that for all age groups, but especially for 18-month-olds, the youngest age group, a more accurate vector to the target was created by what they call the touch line. So instead of a straight line following the exact angle of the finger when extended, it was this imaginary line going from the, the pointing person's eyes to their fingertip to the object. So, like, if you actually, like, had the finger just extend out in a straight line, it would often be way off target. Interesting. Yeah, this is a great instinct to, uh, to explore in the, uh, in the experiment. Yeah, yeah. I find myself experimenting with it right now. Like, what's the difference between me pointing at uh, this rack of shoes in the closet with me here versus reaching for them? Well, I think because of some some illusions of perspective, it often feels like what you're doing is you're just creating a straight vector that extends out along the same angle as your finger and goes to the target. But in fact, if you take pictures of people when they're pointing, they're they're doing something more like creating a, a line from their line of sight to their fingertip to the object. And actually, if you extended the finger vector, it would go way off in some other direction, even though it doesn't quite feel like that. Uh, there's an interesting observation here. They say, quote, it may be noted that although the touch line is more reliable than the arrow line in all age groups, the touch line is the most accurate in the six-year-olds rather than the adults, as one might expect. However, we suspect this is simply due to the six-year-olds producing their gestures more carefully, while the adults were more casual in their engagement with the task, uh, hmm. which I think is probably true, right? Like when adults point, they don't usually take care to be really accurate in pointing. As you become older, pointing becomes more and more uh, slangy. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I was thinking, like, how often do I actually point with my finger at something? Like if I'm specifically pointing out, say, a scone at a bakery, and I'm like, this is the one I want. Not uh -huh. that one, not this, that one, but this one. Uh, or another case would be if I'm trying to point out, say, a bird in a tree to my son, and and I'm not able to do so, uh, you know, with the first couple of, uh, of reference points, I finally will, will point my finger, you know, uh, sometimes like, like lining up my finger, you know, uh, um, around his head, you know, so that he can look down the line of my finger and see what I'm talking about. Uh, but otherwise, I'm more likely to be like, hey, 
look in that tree over there and just sort of casually refer, you know, maybe even with multiple fingers to the tree. Or even with an elbow or something. I feel like that's a common casual thing, right? Like the sort of twisting of the arm, the elbow direction and forearm. Huh. I don't know. I'm trying to do it myself now and it feels strange. Like a chicken arm? Like a bok, bok, bok kind of a... Chicken dance arm? Yeah, yeah kind of a bok, bok, bok. I, I think sometimes uh, I point with an elbow, especially I think if my hands are occupied and I'm standing up. There's oh, like I see. Okay. It's like something over there. I'd be like, hey, over there, I point with the elbow. Oh, kind of a shrug elbow gesture. Okay, now I yes. see what you mean. Yeah. Or a, or a nod of the head can do <laughs> something similar. Yeah. True. If people were videotaping us right now, this would be a, a magical moment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're flapping your wings in your closet there. I am. Um, so there was a second experiment. I thought this one was really clever, uh, especially it's since it's pretty simple once you actually see it. Uh, so it might take a minute to picture this correctly, but uh, I'll try to do the simple version, the short version. Uh, imagine you're sitting somebody across from a box. So you might want to imagine like an old boxy CRT television, right? You know, okay. the kind that had depth. And then you have them point to targets on this box. Now, you could have them point to targets that are all on on a TV, what would be the screen side, the side facing the participant. And they could be in the middle, they could be on the left side, they could be on the right side. Or what you could do is have some of the targets that they need to point at be rotated around to the sides of the box. So they need to point at a target that would be in the TV analogy on the side of the TV, not on the screen side. Mm, okay. So they, they did this test. They, you know, had a box where you would have to point to things that were on the side of the box. And they tested this against a control group where the pointing targets were just moved to the left or right, but they all stayed on the side of the box facing the participant. It was just like a 2D surface. And what was revealed was that compared to control conditions, when the target was on the side of the box, people rotated their wrists to point at it. Hmm, okay. Rotating the hand in exactly the way that they would need to rotate it if they were reaching out to touch the target with the pad of their index finger. And when I read this, I was like, oh, my God, I've never realized. But I think I do that when pointing sometimes that that the orientation of the object depends, it, it changes the orientation of my hand. And so, like, if I would have to reach around something to point to something on, you know, on the side of a three-dimensional object, I sometimes, I think, rotate my hand as if I would be reaching around to touch the thing with my fingers. I, I think this mm. is exactly right. Yeah, or it's almost like you are preparing to extend your arm Mr. Elastic style. Uh-huh. You know, like I need to get the correct curvature and angle as if my arm is about to, uh, you know, lengthen out and then touch the side of the box. Yes, yes, yes. And they said that sometimes this even resulted in drastic twisting of the wrist. Uh, Quote, in some observed instances in the study, the right hand was used to point at the left side of the box or vice versa. And the participants rotated their wrist in a strenuous way through 180 degrees to match the orientation of the surface that they pointed at. So so you can imagine this like some people have a dominant pointing hand and instead of changing hands to rotate easily to point at the side, they, they would like twist their arm all the way around to point with the hand upside down so that they could use their oh, wow. dominant pointing hand to point in a way in which their fingertip could, in theory, touch the thing they were pointing at. 
Yeah, I think that's very revealing. Uh, and then finally, there was a third experiment that was uh, that wasn't about yourself pointing, but it was about judging the pointing of others. It was about trying to read pointing gestures on pictures of other people. And so they would show ambiguous images of pointing gestures, which could be interpreted as pointing along an arrow line extending from the finger or along a touch line going from the eyes to the fingertip to the target. Uh, Robert, I included an, an example for you to look at here. And they found that, quote, the 18-month-olds and the three-year-olds were more likely to pick out the cup the experimenter was looking at in the touch condition than in the arrow condition, whereas the nine-year-olds, the opposite was the case. The six-year-olds did not show a clear preference, being at chance in both conditions, while the adults were well above chance in both conditions. So what they found was that arrow interpretations, the idea of just like, you know, the finger extending out along a line, arrow interpretations of other people's pointing appear to emerge and become stronger later in development, whereas touch interpretations where pointing is the line from your eye to your fingertip to the object, those dominate among the younger. So anyway, I think these experiments are some pretty compelling evidence that that touch, the, the instinct to reach out and touch things could very well be the basis of the pointing gesture as it develops in children. Um, and the authors believe, of course, the same. They believe all three of their tests support the hypothesis, the touch hypothesis. But how exactly does this transition from touching to pointing occur? Well, we don't know for sure, but they have some thoughts about that. So the researchers here think that there could be a kind of ritualized operant conditioning at work for informative pointing similar to the kind we thought might be present for imperative pointing, but it's just a different process. So so we, we know, of course, we were talking about this earlier, when infants are exploring objects in their environment, they often coordinate different types of sensory exploration. They coordinate visual and haptic information gathering. They look and touch at the same time. So it's reasonable to propose that the visual attention of adults and parents might also be directed by a child's touch. You know, think about, you know, if an adult is attending to a child, when the infant reaches out to touch a toy, the parents also begin to pay attention to that particular toy. You know, they're like responding to, oh, this is what you're playing with now, or this is what you're looking at now. Uh, and then from this, the authors write, quote, once the child finds that she can get an adult to pay attention to something by touching it, she may begin to make as if to touch things that are slightly further away. Parents recognize which object the child is aiming to touch and attend to that object. The action originally designed to allow the infant to explore an object with the fingertip becomes a gesture that functions to coordinate the attention of infant and adult on an object and pointing is born. So I think that's a very interesting interpretation. Yeah, I find this hypothesis very, uh, yeah, yeah, very, very convincing. Really, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what kind of further studies are, are are possible here. Well, it makes me think about what kinds of implicit cognition are still going on in the in the brains of you know uh, older children and even adults. Like um, when you're pointing at things, is there still some part of you that is? thinking of pointing as touching and how does that affect the psychology of pointing? Like as we were talking about in the last episode, there are definitely big taboos uh, about, you know, concerning pointing at people or pointing at certain kinds of objects. And typically 
you know, the, the kinds of things that there are taboos about pointing at are things for which there is supposed to be some kind of decorum or respect, like uh, the inanimate objects that in some cultures you're not supposed to point at would be in some way sacred or holy objects, maybe sacred types of animals or, you know, re- religiously significant objects. Uh, whereas, of course, you know, there's a reason that you're supposed to afford respect to other humans, which is why you don't point at them with an extended index finger. It, it could be that there's some kind of taboo about uh, imagined touching that's going on there. Yeah, if if truly to point at someone is to, in a sense, lay hands on them, uh, then then yeah, it would be a huge taboo against that. It makes me think about the, um, you know, there are a few different taboos uh, in in Thai culture concerning shoes and and feet, and and one that that I, I remember is um, a taboo against pointing. Uh, at uh, especially at individuals with the foot, um, which um, which is all the more you know convincing when you when you think about what that means in light of these studies. Like to point at somebody with your foot is essentially to 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 touch them with your foot, and then therefore, yeah, you can you can very very well see how there could that could be interpreted as a highly disrespectful gesture. Yeah, that's very interesting. But it also makes me think about when it goes the other way, when there are ways of um, blunting the the negative power or the psychological impact or taboo of pointing just by not pointing with the extended index finger. So there's some amount of pointing that seems to that seems to be naturally associated with touching uh, no matter what kind of body part you're using. But then maybe there's there's more of that salience when it's the extended index finger and thus like there's less of a taboo of of pointing at people if you just do it with your arm or with an open hand because that feels less like the infant exploratory touch impulse right um yeah I, I, absolutely it also brings to mind uh, like the ways we greet each other uh you know a handshake is a little bit further down down from this but in terms of indicating we already talked about nodding and that uh, from there there we can we can easily go to the realm of various uh, ceremonial forms of bowing and and bowing mm. as a greeting uh such as uh, such as is used as in Thai culture in fact um and that seems like a very yeah, I mean, I guess you could you could extrapolate it and compare it to a headbutt, I guess. But for the most part, I feel like like bowing, uh, uh, or tipping your head to someone in a form of greeting, you know, it, it's it's largely free of the you know implicit pokiness of the the, the index finger or the or the the, the kick, uh, the implicit kick that uh, comes with gesturing with your your foot, uh, that sort of thing. Here's something I just want to test your intuitions on. What do you think are the the differing connotations of acknowledging a person with an upward nod versus acknowledging them with a downward nod. Hmm. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? I, I guess the downward nod could be interpreted as being judgmental or being, uh, you know, a nod of agreement, whereas the upward nod is more just, hey, uh, you know, hello, sup, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. One just one just feels more like a commentary on what one is observing, and the other one feels a lot more just uh, an observation. And maybe we'll have to come back to that. Yeah, I mean, of course, in all of these, you know, obviously there's there are so many additional cultural layers that that one could unravel. Um, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what the answer would be here if we attempted to answer this from a global perspective. Because, yeah, what's the different? So, for instance, within a culture where bowing is uh, is a part of of 
of traditional uh, regular or formal greetings mm-hmm. then then a nod is a nod going to have a, a different weight is it going to have a different place in um, you know cultural interactions versus a culture that does not have uh, bowing as part of its uh, traditions well this is very interesting because this kind of brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk about which was uh, one, one study I was looking at about uh, cultural variation among types of pointing that that humans do. Um, so we already talked extensively about the fact that, you know, studies have found pointing gestures are pretty much universal phenomena in human culture. All cultures point. But there are some differences in how exactly we point or how exactly uh, – what exact types of pointing are most prevalent within a culture. You know, we, we, we've talked about how the, the extended index finger seems to be the most common for especially certain kinds of pointing. But like, why not the middle finger? Why not the thumb? You know, any of these things, of course, could function as a pointing gesture. And and there have been different ideas about this over time. One is that maybe it's just that the natural resting posture of the hand with the muscles and tendons and all that tends to make the, the extended index finger the easiest thing to point with. You can kind of see this in just the way human hands uh, sit when they're totally relaxed, often the index finger is kind of raised above the other ones? Well, I mean, I, mainly I just come down to the fact that the index finger is the more versatile finger. Like if, if someone is just beginning to type and they are hunting and pecking, mm-hmm. they're not hunting and pecking with their middle finger. They're not hunting and pecking with their pinky or their ring finger. They're using their index finger. Like that is the one. If you're going to scrape some paint off of something, you're going to use your index finger and uh, its fingernail. Like it's, it seems to be the most versatile of the digits. Yeah, and I think so. I mean, it like it's it is the most accurate part of one of the defining properties of of the human primate, you know, the the precision grip where the the index finger and the thumb come together, the index finger is a little more precise than the thumb is, right? Yeah, I mean, that's why it is the trigger finger. <laughs> yeah. That is why the thing it is the finger that is traditionally sent into the nostril. Uh, I mean, it is <laughs> it is the the exploratory digit. But you ever see people pick their nose with the pinky? That's fun. Well, I guess they – well, that does make sense from a certain standpoint since it is the smaller of the of the fingers, yes. Uh-huh. But I don't recall seeing it offhand. Uh, but it makes sense. Like I'm not going to question that as a as – a, you know, you know, taboos aside as being just a very sensible choice. Uh, but th- there are different kinds of pointing that are more favored by different cultures around the world. Like there are some cultures where lip pointing can be found in a fairly prominent way. Um, there, there are other cultures where apparently nose pointing not only exists but is is pretty popular. If you're trying to imagine it, this is kind of a way of pointing by scrunching the face and sort of pointing with the scrunched nose. Um mm. And in fact, I I know this is this is mainly identified as being popular in, uh, for example, specific language cultures of uh, Papua New Guinea, which we'll talk about in a second. But I I feel like I've done something like this in my life the the scrunch nose face point. I I think it has happened. Well. I, I can't really speak to the the scrunching of the nose, but certainly we were talking about the you know nodding uh, up or down, and mm-hmm. I think if we get more specific about our analysis of these uh, these facial you know head gestures, we might realize that okay, am I actually is it really my head that is the focal point, or am I in fact um, 
gesturing with my chin or my nose or some other you know specific point on my face. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, so I, I wanted to talk about a specific study I was looking at uh, called "The Preference for Pointing with the Hand Is Not Universal." This was published in the journal Cognitive Science in 2018. Uh, the lead author here was a somebody I referred to in the last episode who uh, I had watched a presentation that he gave about a bunch of different kinds of pointing gesture research. Uh, but so the it's by uh, Kinsey Cooperwriter, James Slada, and Rafael Nunez. And this study had a basic sort of like a moving and stacking of objects task where you would take people and you would have one person direct another person in how to place some objects around in a space, like where to put things, where to stack them. And they tested this among uh, U.S. participants, but then also among the Yupno people of Papua New Guinea. And what they found was that speakers in both groups uh, used plenty of pointing, but there were different preferences in what types and shapes of pointing uh, the, the different groups had. They say, quote, whereas the U.S. participants exhibited a clear, strong preference for manual pointing, pointing with the finger, the Yupno made balanced use of both non-manual and manual forms with no significant preference between the two. And Robert, I've got a couple of graphs for you to look at here. When you see the data represented, it's very clear that like U.S. participants do almost all of their pointing with the hand. The hand is clearly favored. Um, depending on other conditions among the Yupno people, it seems, you know, maybe half and half or so. Roughly half is with the hand, but then there's this other strong preference for especially pointing with the scrunched nose gesture. And this difference is really interesting. The authors were trying to account for why exactly this would be, like what would cause the difference between the cultures. One possible explanation that they give is that they say, quote, throughout New Guinea, there is an emphasis on controlling the broadcasting of communication. Uh, and examples they give here would be a tendency toward circumspection, uh, whispering, uh, ingressive speech, which, which is a term for speaking while inhaling. Uh, and they write, quote, non-manual pointing may thus be part of a repertoire of bodily techniques that reduce the broadcasting of communicative signals, as indeed some Yupno consultants have suggested to us. Another Yupno cultural model that may bear on gestural behavior is the idea of the easygoing person, or uh, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce this word, but it is spelled uh, Y-A-W-O-R-I or uh, Yawori. And this basically means a person who is not overactive, who's not aggressive, but who is calm and contained in a sense, a kind of coolness that there is a, a, a cultural value to among many peoples of New Guinea. So it could be that some variations in cultural values about what kind of persona and affect it's admirable to project, like, you know, the person who is cool and easygoing in this way, that might influence whether you would point with a certain part of your body or another the same way in maybe American culture that certain values about uh, how how it looks, you know, how you can look cool would would influence whether you point with your chin or point with a finger. Mm, yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, but then there are also some practical considerations that might explain part of this difference. So, uh, for example, you can't point with a finger when your hands are occupied. 
The authors write, quote, manual availability could also affect a community's pointing preferences on cultural historical timescales in communities where the hands are commonly occupied while communicating. So maybe during activities like food processing, non-manual gesturing could become more frequent and eventually carry over to times when the hands are free. That makes sense. If I'm carrying a weapon and I'm hunting, uh, I, I can't speak with my hands. They are otherwise engaged. Right. And there, there could be all kinds of tasks where uh, among certain cultures, like, you know, you would be using your hands while you're pointing at something to indicate something to somebody else. If you're, you know, cooking together, processing or, or uh, preparing food together, uh, doing all kinds of things. You know, another thing is that they say uh, manual pointing, you know, using the, the finger to point is considered more precise than facial or other non-manual pointing, but also less effortful. Uh, so in cultures where precision pointing is less often required, say if you are not often pointing to a small object distant on the horizon or to a small element within a media display or something like that, the efficiency of movement may overtake the need for precision in pointing. And the authors write, quote, note that if indeed Yupno speakers observe a principle of least effort when pointing, the interesting question becomes not why Yupno speakers often avoid manual pointing, but why English speakers so often overextend themselves. <laughs> like why, <laughs> why do English speakers have this tendency to waste more effort using the hand to point something when that amount of precision is not necessary? Yeah, like if you're engaging in a great deal of gesticulation while talking, yeah, a lot of it is um, perhaps overly boisterous, you know? <laughs> yeah, and th this is, of course, something that's very important to remember whenever you're studying, like, cultural differences in communication or gestures or something like that, to not think of it in terms of, okay, here's how my culture does things, this other culture does things a different way. Why are they weird? The question is not why are they weird, right? Because they're not weird. It's just like, what explains the difference? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, all of it, all of it's weird. Well, right. Well, of course, yeah, it is weird in that everyone's weird. Yeah. Uh, but then this last explanation that they gave as a, as a possible reason here I thought was very interesting. They say that precision pointing is less necessary when it's accompanied by languages that offer more precision in terms of spatial location with words alone. And mm. th this is a really interesting possibility. It could have to do specifically with the Yupno language. They say that the Yupno language, quote, boasts a highly elaborated demonstrative system involving uphill-downhill distinctions and a three-way distance contrast. Such spatially specific demonstratives were used pervasively by Yupno speakers in our task, whereas U.S. speakers only had the comparatively blunt English demonstratives of this versus that to work with. Speakers of languages that habitually provide increased spatial precision in their spoken demonstratives, such as Yupno, might have less need for spatial precision in the pointing gestures that often accompany those demonstratives. So it, it may be that it's the fact that the Yupno language apparently has a richer, more elaborate, and more specific lexicon of words and sort of spatial grammar for indicating exactly where and what kind of object you're talking about. So precision in pointing is less necessary because you can point more with words than you can in English. Oh, now that is interesting. Okay. 
and and this highlights another thing that's very interesting about different languages, the way that uh, space is conceptualized differently in different languages. Yupno is an example here where uh, I was looking at some other writings about this language that has uh, – the, the study mentioned this this distinction between uphill and downhill. Apparently, that's just like a common thing for representing all kinds of spaces that in English we would not usually think of as uphill or downhill, but say like – Within a house, the door is – I don't remember which way it was, but like you would just naturally conceptualize the door as either uphill or downhill of the rest of the house. And there are just lots of other like implicit slope associations for describing space that, that give them all these different ways to sort of specify exactly what region they're talking about that are not conventional in English. Hmm. So it's all just a good reminder that that pointing, gesticulation, like these things do not exist in a vacuum. They exist, of course, within a culture, but they also exist alongside language. And we have to, uh, you know, consider how spoken language uh, is is involved in uh, cultural uh, tendencies. Right, exactly. What you can do with language influences what you need what you need to accomplish with pointing and vice versa. What you can do with pointing can also influence what kind of words you need to use. And so there's definitely a codependent kind of feedback system going on there. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more quick break. But when we come back, we're going to discuss technology. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about pointing, and now we wanted to make the transition to digital technology. Yeah, digital. Ha. Huh. Uh, because we're talking about digits, <laughs> right? Um, I do. I do think it's interesting that we see this emphasis on on pointing continue on through our technology. So if we if we think of the finger as our base system for this sort of activity, then the next obvious place is just simple tool use, right? A stick or an otherwise specialized tool, such as say a knife or even a sword or a spear or something, uh, or for a more modern example, something like a chalk, a piece of chalk or or a marker for a marker board. We end up we can use these things as uh, pointing implements, or we might depend on a specialized pointer, say a, uh, a stick that, we, that serves no other real purpose except for pointing at things. Yeah, that's funny. I hadn't even really thought about that much in this episode yet, but that's huge. Yeah, when a teacher points with chalk, that sort of becomes a new finger. Yeah, and I mean, this also brings in a, a whole host of new considerations. We talked about if pointing is touching then what we are pointing with and how we are pointing with our fingers, that influences the way that the point is received. Likewise, how do we receive it when someone points at us or at something we created or what have you uh, with a, a stick or a weapon or a piece of chalk or a marker or even a specialized pointer? Uh, how does that alter our relationship between ourselves and others and between ourselves and things in our environment? Mm -hmm. So we've all seen a designated pointer before. Uh, they can be simple. They can be ornate. They can be made out of wood. They might be metallic uh, and telescopic in construction. Uh, <laughs> you know, frequently you'll see these used during presentations, right? When one is presenting material on a blackboard, a marker board, or some sort of a map. Yeah, it's often in the scene in movies where the masters of war are looking at a map to, you know, talk about some kind of battle or advance or something, and they've got that telescoping metal pointer. I've never yeah. had one of those. It'd be cool to have one. They always look really cool, don't they? 
Yeah. Uh, but, but of course, in all this, we also get into this gray area of, of not only ancient pointing, but uh, items of indication. So consider the scepter, for example, which traditionally is, you know, a scepter is a thing you hold in your hand that may not have any other real uh, world purpose to it. It indicates status. It indicates power. And there have been connections to traditions. So, for instance, in some cultures, a shepherd's crook is considered to be a possible predecessor to the scepter. Like it's something that indicates status in a uh, in you know in an actual trade, and then it, that carries over into some sort of a a regal role. Uh, in in other uh, cultures, uh, connections have been made between a holy scepter and a back scratch. Uh, so here's a thing that had a purpose, but now it has become this thing that is more about just uh, a signifier of status. This thing about the scepter is making me think back to that William Blake uh, painting we talked about in the last episode where, where God is judging Adam and he's pointing at him. And if you look closely, it, it appears he's holding some kind of wand or scepter in his hand that extends out to Adam's head, basically. But it it, it's kind of hard for me to see the scepter. It just looks like his finger or some kind of ray of light is extending out and going straight into Adam's skull. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in this, we are getting into the, the idea of the rod, the verge, and of course, the wand. So in addition to any magical powers we might attribute to a, a rod or a verge or a wand, we're ultimately talking about a stick that can be used for reaching, for pointing, for drawing in the dust and sand, for directing people about. So, you know, when you really start to think about all those specialized uses for it, it actually sounds pretty magical in its own right. Again, this is an object that you you point at somebody with it and you instantly command their attention. And then you point across the room and you can instantly draw their attention from themselves to that. You can use it to create um, uh, images of the world in the dust uh, or to inscribe symbolic meaning into the dust. Like this is a pretty magical item. You don't even need to have uh, lightning bolts coming out of it. Yeah, I mean, we talked in the last episode about how pointing is a form, much like language, is a form of mind control. We don't often appreciate this, but like uh, there's some studies that show that pointing is nearly irresistible. When somebody points, you just kind of have to look. It's really hard to resist that temptation, and it just captures your mind that way. Yeah, and so there's a long tradition of magical items that are used in point for pointing in both mythology and then, of course, later in fiction. Uh, but for an old example, just consider in the Iliad, Homer writes of the gods and their magical rods, specifically the rods of Hermes, Athena, and Circe. So these are uh, magical items uh, or items of focus through which they work their power, something you might point at, say, a bunch of sailors and then turn them into pigs with. Uh, it almost mir- maybe I'm getting too metaphorical, but it almost mirrors the way that you can turn somebody into a pig by controlling their attention in the right way, you know. <laughs> yeah. You can you can really kind of alter somebody's nature by making them pay attention to what you want them to pay attention to. Exactly. Uh, here's a fun example, too. Pointers can also be quite sacred in addition to ornate. So consider the, the Yad, a ceremonial pointer, also known as a Torah pointer, which in Jewish ritual is a means of following the text in a, um, in, in a parchment Torah scroll during a reading. Um, part, part of the practice is simply about following lines of text as you read them, but there's also 
both a supernatural aspect to it and a um, and a mundane aspect. So one idea is this is a holy text, and we should not besmirch it or corrupt it uh, or take away its purity by physically touching it. But also, uh, parchments are susceptible to damage via human fingers, via, via the oil or other substances on human fingers, and therefore it makes sense to reduce the amount of contact that one has with a valuable text like this. And so this is where the, uh, the Torah pointer comes in. Uh, they're typically made of silver, but sometimes other substances are used. Um, and you'll often find this, uh, this, this wand, basically it's a short wand or rod, and it is often capped with a small hand, a small human hand with an index finger extended. Mm-hmm. This feels very interesting. Something is going on here, yeah, with the wands and and the 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 kind of magical power we imbue to the finger pointing, especially within a religion where a text itself takes on such a sacred dimension. That like, um, I wonder if having a little pointing object in this way is almost like a, itself an act of of bowing before the text or kind of like showing reverence. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, it it makes me want to do a deeper dive or or talk to somebody with with more experience in um uh you know Judaic custom and uh, and Hebraic ritual but because mm-hmm. uh, I mean the other side of it too is of course when one is traditionally reading uh, many of you out there listening may do this as well you may take your index finger and use it to read you may go line by line with your index finger physically touching the paper now, here's a question I've never actually considered. I always just assumed that the using of the index finger assists in reading comprehension, that people do that because it makes it easier to keep your place and follow along. I still, I guess, assume that's probably true, but is that the case? Is it is it actually practically useful to do that? Or is that something that we do out of instinct, even though it doesn't affect how our reading comprehension I don't know. I've never I've never studied it. There may be may, may well be studies about it. I may my main experience with it it was a, I know a thing that I used to do either with my finger or with like a bookmark, and I was kind of encouraged not to do that. Or you know, just the idea was presented that it's better better to read without those kind of uh, 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 aids. Hmm. And then I kind of fell out of it and like then got to the point where I didn't need it anyway. So uh, yeah, I, I I don't do that myself. But I don't know. Perhaps there there are people who who still read by that. They they swear by it and do that their whole lives. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question to me. Now, maybe we can look for studies about that. Yeah, I mean, typography is also going to be a factor in all this too, right? I mean, totally. Depending yeah. on how the words are laid out, it may be easier to read certain texts without um, some sort of pointing implement. Whereas if you're dealing with a traditional, uh, you know, holy scroll, uh, it it may just be easier to to use some sort of pointing implement to follow your way through it. That makes sense. Now, we've already touched on the laser pointer, which continues this tradition into the 20th century and beyond. But we also have to consider, uh, as we you know, reach the end here, the, the pointer or cursor on a computer, which, much like the Yad, is often presented as a hand with an index finger outstretched. Uh, sometimes <laughs> it's an arrow, of course, but other times, or, or at least in some functions um, of the cursor, it becomes an index finger. And, and while a computer mouse is obviously not not necessary to control a cursor. We have other means of controlling it. The mouse is an extremely common interface. And in fact, I was reading a 2009 Scientific American article by Larry um, Greenmeyer titled The Origin of the Computer Mouse. 
And uh, the author refers to the mouse. He may have been quoting someone here, but he refers to the mouse as a pointing device. Well, yeah, I think there's some very interesting implied psychology going on here with with user design uh, and 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 the pointing gesture. So, when you're pointing on a screen, you you might be pointing for the benefit of a third party, but you're often not. Like you're often just by yourself looking at the screen, and mm-hmm. yet you've got to have this thing to identify where it is you want to interact on the screen. And and one thing that that seems very interesting to me is that it the pointer, the mouse pointer. In most cases, to me, it seems that the the little uh, pointer arrow turns into the finger pointing out with the index finger when you're ready to click a link on a web page. So when you want to go somewhere else, that's when you point with the finger. Yeah, when you want to essentially push a button uh, to, to activate something, to touch something, that's when the finger comes into play. Oh, yeah. Maybe the going somewhere else is not as significant because I think it's buttons too, right? It's also like radio toggle mm-hmm. buttons and things like that. Yeah. And then likewise, sometimes you have like the full hand for grabbing things and dragging things around, right? Right. That's the that's the imperative pointing from uh, from infancy. Yeah. Give me that. So anyway, bring, bring all this up as kind of a, just a consideration of where we've continued to go and just how deeply ingrained uh, pointing and, and touching uh, with the index finger, uh, how, how all of that is key to not only the human experience, but then the human experience as it, as it continues to take on the form of technology. I'd be very interested to see some more studies about how uh, how digital representations of control, such as the mouse pointer, are incorporated into extended body schema that we imagine, you know, the same mm-hmm. way that we incorporate physical tools into uh, our imagination of our extended body. Surely there's some degree to which we do that with things that are not even in physical space, but they're representational tools on a screen. Yeah, yeah. To remind everybody, body schema is basically your mental idea of what your body is, what its limits are. And when we engage in tool use, we update our body schema. So if one, you know, you might have heard the the saying, it's like, okay, this tool becomes an extension of my body. This sword becomes an extension of my body. That is very much what is happening when it, when a sword or some other kind of tool is incorporated into our body schema. All right. Well, there you have it. Our two-part look at pointing and our, you know, attempts to to unravel some of like what it is, where it comes from, how it varies from culture to culture and how it, uh, how it applies to animals and how it is or is not incorporated in our technology. So obviously we'd love to hear from everyone about this topic. Everyone out there has, has, uh, you know, a, a lot of experience with the world of pointing or being pointed at or generally gesticulating with your hands, trying to point things out to your dog or your cat or your horse, whatever, you know, whatever animal you have uh, interacted with, we would love to hear your experience. We'd love to hear about your details. Um, in the meantime, uh, well, first of all, we just hope everybody's doing well out there. Uh, everybody's uh, being kind to each other out there. Uh, and if you want to support our show, the best thing you can do is, uh, well, tell people about it, but also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get this podcast. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas, Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 